But before we do, we got to talk about a little food. I can't tell you about a restaurant to go to because you're trapped. We're in quarantine. You have to stay home. So I've rediscovered my love for a salad that I grew up eating. My grandmother was born in the 1800s. Can you imagine? My dad was born in 1915. So I'm talking about a woman in my life who was born in the 1800s, if you can believe that. My grandmother. And she had a bowl that she used exclusively for salad. And it was made of wood. She used to take a garlic clove. She didn't chop it up with a knife. She took the garlic clove and rubbed it on the wooden bowl that she used for salad. Rubbed the garlic into the wood. She then poured, she put the carrots and the celery and the head lettuce into the bowl that was now coated with garlic, the wooden surface. She puts kosher salt, black pepper, and red wine vinegar. And she would let that salad sit for a while. It only would marinate. My mouth is watering already. Oh my God. You would eat this salad with the garlic, the red wine vinegar, little olive oil, and salt and pepper. It's the, it's, it's my childhood. So I've been eating this while I've been in quarantine at home. And as I get towards the end of eating the entire bowl, guess what's at the bottom? The red wine vinegar, the garlic, the black pepper, the, and I grew up taking that bowl and putting it to my lips and drinking this sharp, incredibly tangy concoction. And I probably saw my father do it, which is why I do it. I can't prove it. I'm a doctor, so I can't prove this medically. But I got to tell you this. I got to believe if you drink red wine vinegar, it's got to be good for you. Got to be. I just can't prove it. Because as soon as I drink it, I feel like I've made myself healthier. My immune system, who knows what. But I think drinking vinegar is probably good for you. And man, does this taste good. Oh, my God. The other thing I need to talk about is it's Passover. So I've been eating something called matzah brai, B-R-E-I. And in essence, it's chili killies. But instead of using the tortilla chips and mixing it with egg and frying it in a skillet and putting tomatilla sauce on it, oh my God, my mouth is watering already thinking of chili killies, which I did not grow up with. But what I did grow up with is taking the matzah, crumbling it, mixing it with a couple of eggs, a lot of butter in the skillet, and essentially making French toast with crushed matzah, flipping it over, making it crispy again. And then you have this plate of the most delicious, you can get matzah, order it. It's in the supermarkets now. You can put syrup on it. You can put whatever you want, applesauce. You know what I put on it? What I what I grew up putting on it, white sugar. You put white sugar on top of hot matzah brai. You know what happens to the sugar? it starts to caramelize and melt, and it makes its own type of caramel and syrup. You put a bite of that warm, hot matzah brai with sugar in your mouth, it's worth the quarantine. It is so good. Coming up next, we'll get into the meat of this show. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. 
Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Today's show is all about the wind and how the wind blows. In a split second, you sometimes have to make a decision in life. Which way to go? At 8.15, my guest, Bing Copeland, 85 years old. But he's going to talk about being at Miracosta High School in the 50s. And he saw the wind change on the flag. And he said to himself, I got to get out of this baseball practice because the ocean is calling. Because he knew he was a surfer. In the world of art, the world of sports, the world of surgery, you got to be ready when the wind changes to go with it. Don't fight it. Go with it. And if it touches your heart, you've made the right direction. Just to tell you a quick story. So when I grew up, there was no opportunity for me to get art classes or there was not enough uh, money in the house to pay for me to go to art school or take classes. But I knew I loved, I had a classmate who was the most incredible artist. And he always used to sit next to me. And I just cannot believe the magic of this man, this kid's talent. And he introduced me to Mad Magazine. And I looked at those pages in Mad Magazine and could not believe that you could take a pencil and make on a blank piece of paper a drawing that looked exactly like the person, the actor, the TV show, whatever it was. I was obsessed with Flipper. So I'm sure it was a picture of a porpoise and Bud from Flipper or whatever it was. And the man who did it better than anybody who ever lived was named Mort Drucker. Well, I'm in the operating room one day and my anesthesiologist says to me, if there's anybody you'd love to communicate with who's alive now, Robbie, who would it be? And it was easy. That man inspired me to become an artist, to become a surgeon, to do everything that I did started with being obsessed with Mort Drucker and how he took a blank piece of paper and a pencil and blew my mind. Three-dimensional figures he made two-dimensional drawings of, and they looked exactly like what I saw. And I spent hours trying to copy what he did in the Mad Magazines. And he, in essence, it's like he was tapping me on the shoulder, teaching me how to draw. Well, this anesthesiologist said, really? You'd love to meet more trucker? Write him a letter? Meet with him? I said, yeah, but that's impossible. Well, the next week, he gives me, he says to me, hey, Robbie, here's more trucker's address. You should write him a letter. I go, how'd you get the address? This is before Google. I said, how'd you get the address? He goes, it's a hobby of mine. Don't ask me too many questions, but you should write him a letter. Anyway, to make a very long story short, I sat down and I wrote him a letter and I spilled my guts out, thanking him for everything he did for me, even though I had never met him. A week later, my anesthesiologist friend says to me, hey, Robbie, did you ever hear back from Mort Drucker? I said, no, he's not going to write me back. I sent him a copy of one of the books I wrote. I said, I became a surgeon because of you. I became a sculptor in marble because of you. It all started with, and I just spilled my guts out in this letter. Two weeks go by, I see my anesthesiologist. Hey, Robbie, did you ever hear back from Mort Drucker? I said, no, these people write you back, but they're not writing me back. Of course, three weeks went by. Hey, Robbie, Jim. No. A month after I wrote the letter, I got a big yellow manila envelope in the mail from Mort Drucker. Dear Robbie, I got your letter and it made my day. And he starts to spill his guts to me. What you said was so beautiful. Ba -ba -ba anyway, turns out his wife had a bad knee. Can you imagine? And the next thing I know, he calls me. Do you think you can help my wife? He's in New York. I'm in California. I picked up that phone and I telephonically, just like I'm doing now in the office, just like I'm doing on the radio with you guys, 
I helped her. She was so appreciative. I had to fly to New York to go to a meeting at special surgery. And I called him. He said, Robbie, you're in New York. You got to come by my house. You got to come meet my family. Is your family coming with? I brought my family to meet my hero. And here I am in his living room, which was his studio, showing me all these man magazine things he did. And he said, you know, Robbie, before you leave, can I just take a picture? Took a picture and I got sent to me. And you can see if you go on Twitter, you'll see the drawing he made of me in 2006. And he told me in his house that he loved me. I could not believe to this day. And if you look at the Twitter picture, you'll read what he wrote to me. This is a guy I met once in my life, but he knew how much he had meant to me. And I got to meet my hero. More Drucker passed away this week at the age of 91. A man who truly changed my life, who I met, thank God, once because of my crazy anesthesia friend who made me write him a letter. You know what? The only thing you regret in your life are the things that you don't do. So if I can write a letter to my hero, you know what you should do? You should write a letter to your hero because you never know. Tomorrow they could be gone. The fact that I was able to tell Mort Drucker how much he meant to me and he could acknowledge it, it's like the greatest thing. I think there's like 10 folks in my life from Ranawat, Mort Drucker, Boutros. I can go through the 10 folks in my life who changed my life. To be able to interact with them, it's the greatest thing in the world. Coming up next, I'll take your calls. We'll see if we have time for one or two. The number is 877-710-ESPN. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warriors show here on 710 ESPN. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. I'm so excited. Joining me now, calling in from Idaho, is the great Bing Copeland. Bing, thanks so much for getting up early to be with us. I'm so excited. Well, good morning to you, uh, Robbie. It's uh, Actually, it's an hour later here in Idaho, so I've had my breakfast and my coffee, and I'm ready to go. <laughs> Speaking of ready to go, Bing Copeland, where did the creativity come to call you Bing? I've never met anybody with that first name before. Where does that come from? Well, I was born uh, uh, Herbert Bingham Copeland III. My father was the the second. My grandfather was the first. So my middle name was Bingham. And when when I was two years old, uh, babysitters didn't want to call me Herbie. So they shortened (laughs) my middle name and called me Bing, and it's been that way ever since. Oh, my God. You know, our paths have crossed without crossing. So you know I sculpted marble from the, in the stone that Michelangelo used in his quarry, the same exact stone. And my studio is on 10th Street and Highland in Manhattan Beach. And you'll see blocks of stone out there right now if you were to walk there. And you grew up literally a block away, right? Exactly. Ninth and Highland. 814 <laughs> Highland to be exact. <laughs> and here's another one. When you went to Waikiki and Honolulu in the late 50s, you lived on Lilio Kalani Street. Well, in 1983, when I went to Hawaii to work at Queens Hospital for the very first time, my fourth year of medical school, I did a rotation. I lived on Lilio Kalani Street. It's amazing that oh, I'm just so happy to be able to talk to you. 
Now it was 19, 1955 when I went to, when I was there. Oh my God! <laughs> you know I don't I don't really use the term often, but I'm going to. The whole idea and why I'm so obsessed with Michelangelo and when he used to go into the quarry and and pick the stone that he wanted to use. No other sculptor ever did this. His designation when he would mark the block of stone he wanted was he would draw three circles that interlock, kind of like how the Olympic signal uh, signal is. And it meant the three circles, he's in the guild for architect, for painter, and for sculptor. And when I think of you, you truly remind me of Michelangelo as a surfer, a shaper, and as an, an artist. Is it not lost on you the metaphor of surfing for life, that the nose of the board is the future, the tail of the board is your past, and the surfer stands in the middle and learns to live in the moment? Tell me about the metaphor of surfing in life. <laughs> that's, that's a long one. Uh, <laughs> for me, for me, uh, surfing, uh, you know, I, I just started when I was 13, 14 years old. And uh, to, to get into the surfboard business was just a natural progression because I grew up around Dale Velzey, who basically was uh, one of the first board builders in California. Mm-hmm. And uh, I learned a lot from him. And it was uh, when I did come back, well, I, w- I went to Hawaii for for a couple of years to be in the Coast Guard. And then I sailed on a yacht for another year. But in 1959, I started my surfboard business. So it being in the ocean, being near the ocean, surfing was uh, all that I really wanted to do. And uh, my other option was probably to get a real job on the other side of Pacific Coast Highway, and I didn't want to go that far east. (laughs) I'd love to ask you this one question, Bing Copeland, that I've always thought about, and it was told to me by a Hawaiian friend of mine. And tell me if this makes sense. He said, if you take a blank of the two blanks of the same height and you build a board the same length, the same width, the same thickness, the same dimensions, and you then glass those two boards, you take them out in the ocean, they are going to ride slightly differently. Is that true? Well, yeah, it depends on the rails. The bottom contour and all that. Mm-hmm. Basically, the same same length, same width, same thickness will probably float about the same, but they they definitely won't ride the same if they if they don't have the proper characteristics in the fin and the and the rails and so forth. So again, I'm going to use the Michelangelo metaphor with you being Copeland because I just think you are that great. One of the rare moments in Michelangelo's life, his biographer visited him in the, in his studio, and he didn't really let people into the studio, and they didn't suffer fools very well. The biographer, Vasari, said he watched him work feverishly, hitting the marble with such force, pieces three to four times the size of a typical sculptor came flying off the face, like critical air. He makes one mistake. It's ruined. And Vasari said he blurted out, Michelangelo, how do you know when to stop? And Michelangelo turned to him and said, when you hit the skin. So I want to ask you, Bing Copeland, (laughs) do you see the finished product when you begin with the skill saw shaping the blank? Can you get to the point where you see it 
before it even is taken off? Well, you definitely start with an idea in your mind that you want to achieve. And, uh, yeah, and you whittle away till you get to that vision that you have. As far as designing a, a new model or something like that, that, that would be the way. Just shaping generally, a shaper, you know, will have a certain model and he wants to, and he wants to shape it the same every time. But it, to me, it's more fun to be uh, inventive uh, with new new designs and, and new shapes. That was what I enjoyed the most about shaping the surfboard. Did, did you have a favorite part of the process of shaping the surfboard? Just seeing your vision come out in the end is what's important. Hmm. You know, you're one of the few people who made the transition. You know, you you started your life. You know, Rebecca... Let's play the sound bite of Bing speaking. I would like to hear, now I have the person who's talking actually can almost editorialize what he's hearing. Let's play the sound bite for Bing. I remember I went out for baseball at Maricosta High School, uh, went out for baseball, <clears throat> and uh, I was left-handed. I wanted to be a first baseman, and about the fourth or fifth day of, of uh, tryouts and stuff, I remember looking up at the flag at the school and was blowing offshore at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I went, i got to get out of here. <laughs> Uh, back to the beach and and yeah they definitely uh yeah we weren't look you know we, we we would run around barefoot all the time and let our hair grow a little too long and we we were not widely accepted in those days bing you remember that day when it called to you absolutely <laughs> absolutely yeah it was a hot day it was a santa Ana wind <laughs> Uh, going offshore, and I knew my buddies were all surfing, and the tide was right, and I was trying to be a first baseman and, and realized that I definitely wouldn't be first string. I would be sitting on the bench, so I'd rather be in the ocean. So uh, that was my choice. So I heard, I heard that and was just so impressed with how you knew immediately. Can you take me to the other extreme when you realized you weren't going to surf anymore? towards the end when you were 75 and the last wave. You remember the first wave? You remember the last wave? I remember them both. Yes, I do. Very much so. The, the last wave, I was in Baja. I had a home in Baja at the time, which I just sold recently uh, last year, last uh, fall. And uh, I was surfing a little spot the, the, just south of our, our, our home in Baja. Uh, that was fun, fun little beach break spot. And at that point at 75, I, I was having trouble getting to my feet. I couldn't, I couldn't pop up like, like you should. And, uh, so consequently, if I, if I couldn't get to my feet in time, I would, I would just belly slide. And I was, hmm. actually, I was having a lot of fun belly sliding. <laughs> wave overhead and it felt great. Uh, anyway, this one wave, I was just going, going in towards the beach and I, and, uh, I could, I could see I was getting close to the to the beach, and there were some rocks, and I thought, well, I better do a little island pullout, which is burying the nose of the board and spinning the tail around, and get out of the wave. And I tried to bury it, tried to bury it two or three times. It didn't go, didn't go. Finally, I washed up on the beach, and it broke the nose off the board. And uh, I just said to myself, this is it. I'm, I'm, I'm done. Mm. That was my last wave. And I don't regret it. I honestly don't. I've talked to... Several friends, uh, Hap Jacobs, uh, John McFarland, guys that are older, a little older than me, that also hung it up at one time or another, and and they just said, well, I quit, and it just wasn't fun anymore. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's not only that, but, but, you know, you start having some physical limitations that keep you from being agile enough to jump to your feet and, and turn and have fun on the board. And, and it's, you know, you just realize it's time. Uh, it's time. I, I do, t- I do talk to some guys, I call them younger guys, the guys in their fifties and sixties and tell them this story, you know, about how I quit and why I quit and stuff. And they go, oh, I'm never going to quit until <laughs> I die. And uh, I know better. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, can you hang on the line a second? I want to talk to you about the mountains versus the ocean and the whole new life you have. But then you were reborn again and what that was like. Can you just hang on a second? We're just going to pay some bills and get back to the interview. Sure. sure. Okay. okay. I love it. We're talking to the great Bing Copeland a Mount Rushmore icon in the world of surfing and shaping surfboards. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. We're so delighted to be able to talk to the great Bing Copeland. Bing, you spent the time in 1974, you leave the surf and you move to Idaho and create a successful business there. When I'm in the ocean, waiting for the waves, these bumps in the ocean to come, and then I look up, because I surf in Ventura, at the mountains in front of me, on some level, I almost feel like it's the same. There's a mountain of water, there's a mountain of dirt, that there's a wave, it's a frozen wave, and that's what a mountain is. What was it like to transition in your life from having 24-7 the ocean and surfing to now being in the mountains? Well, it was uh, it was a matter of necessity at the time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't so much that, 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 that I did it for the, for the mountains themselves. I did it because the surfboard industry was, uh, at that time, was going into the tank. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I ha- and I ha- really had to do something different. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, well, this was... Uh, this is as the boards are getting shorter, very short actually, uh, and it was also happened to be the hippie era and the drug era uh, in California, uh, which led me to think I'd like to, to live in a smaller town. Mm-hmm. Uh, my business was dwindling because the older guys that uh, the guys that were paying the full price for surfboards, uh, a lot of them were quitting because they didn't want to ride short boards. So there wasn't enough business. I had a big factory and a, a lot of employees, and uh, I, I could see it in the handwriting on the wall that it wasn't going to continue to be a successful business. So uh, I, I contacted a friend in Idaho, actually, who used to work with me, was my sales manager for years, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he had a business up there, and I, I moved up and uh, became a partner with him, and that's turned out very well for both of us. But uh, that, that's the reason I did it. There was no other reason other than it was a necessity. You know, I just love when I study your life, how, as a surgeon, how important art is to me. And what I love about your journey is how important art seemed to be for you as well. And I had the privilege of taking care of Bruce Brown, did shoulder surgery on him, and we became very close friends. And I noticed recently that the... The iconic poster, The Endless Summer, made by John Hammersfeld, you also worked with him in your poster designs. So tell us about Bruce Brown. Tell us about 
John Hammersfeld and how much art played a role in your life. When I had my very first shop on the Strand in Hermosa Beach, right by the pier, John Van Hammersfeld was a young surfer at, the, at that time, and he and his crew, most of the Haggerty Surf Club members and stuff like that, became customers of mine. And uh, John, actually, he did the poster as as an ad for hmm. the magazine. For uh, He was, uh, I guess, editor or art director of International Surfing, was it, or... Surfing mm-hmm. Illustrated, one of those two. And so th- that's where that poster came from. But it was re- originally an ad. But he did this prior to doing the Endless Summer poster. So he kind of talks about it starting him into the poster business. So I, I feel I feel uh, honored about that. You were there for the beginning of everything. How about Bruce Brown? Bruce Brown? I, I, I've known Bruce Brown, you know, all through the years. But uh, we were never real close. But uh, mm-hmm. a great, great guy. I always respected him and, and uh, enjoyed his films for sure. Now, tell us, take us back to 1957 with Greg Knoll, the first day at Waimea. I got to ask you this question because I ask this of every surfer I have on the show, from Jerry Lopez to I had Greg and Jed Knoll on uh, in the past as well, Sean Thompson. Tell us about the close calls. You're surfing Waimea Bay in 1957. Have you ever said to yourself, uh-oh, I'm down too long, this may be it for me? No, I, I never never really had that feeling. I, really? I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed bigger waves. I enjoyed big waves. Uh, when we went to, in 1955 to 57, we spent a lot of time uh, at Makaha. And n- luckily we got there, you know, we surfed in California, so we were, we were young, 19 years old. We were in good shape. Uh, we were good swimmers because in those days we didn't have leashes. If you lose your board, you had to swim. So everybody mm. had pretty good survive, survival swimming skills. Uh, mm. But I remember surfing Makaha when it started like it, you know, we started surfing at about six foot and, and you know, a day or two later it got a little bigger, a little bigger. And so we got we worked our way up and we eventually mm. were riding 20-foot 20, 20 waves at Makaha. But <laughs> the thing that I, that I liked about the larger waves is, the slowness. It's just like, you know, it was a, a takeoff and a long drop. If you look down the line and if you see it's going to close out, you'd straighten your board out. You'd shoot way out in front of the wave. And it just seemed like it took forever. You could lay down and then the, the white water would catch up with you and just kind of envelop you. And then you come popping out of it, bouncing and bouncing. <laughs> These were on bigger boards. These were balsa boards in those days. Balsa, balsa, wow. Velzy's 9-6. Surfboard, so. Bing, when you shaped the boards, did you play music or did you prefer to be in silence? I was always in silence, although some of my uh, employees that shaped uh, enjoyed music. But I, 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 no, I always liked to just concentrate on what I was doing. I, no, music was not a part of my shaping, for sure. After, um, this is my last question, Bing. I'm, I could talk to you for hours. Now that you look back on your life, for the young folks, what kind of message would you give someone like what should you do with your life do you find the passion do you follow the wind in whichever way it blows you what would be your meaning of life or your journey for life i would say uh just uh, follow your passion and uh and go the way the wind blows just do what <laughs> do what just seems to come natural and uh enjoy the trip i, I never really planned my 
future. I just sort of lived every day as, as it came to me, and and it's uh, worked out well for me. So I, I don't know how else to say that, but just to just to follow follow the line and do do what you want to do, and and uh, hopefully you enjoy it. You know, we can all learn from this. Uh, you've had a blessed life, but the most important thing is you appreciate the blessing that it is. It's exactly the way Vince Scully speaks as well. He still feels like he's the luckiest guy in the world and all shucks about it. And you're the same way. Bing Copeland, it's such a pleasure. Listen, you now have an orthopedic surgeon in your family, me, if you ever need me. And I sure appreciate you joining us today. You really made our day, particularly with this crazy pandemic going on. Exactly. Thank you, Robbie. I'm enjoying talking to you from my home in Idaho, overlooking the mountains. It's peaceful and calm. There's no no cars on the road because of this virus thing, and uh, yeah. it's pretty enjoy pretty enjoyable. Thanks very much for well, having me. Okay, stay safe, Bing Copeland, and God bless you. All right, Warriors. Coming up next, the clinic will be open. The number is eight seven 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 ten ESPN. What a pleasure to be able to talk to one of my heroes, the great Bing Copeland, on seven ten ESPN. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. That's the great Bob Seger. Against the wind. What a great show to talk about how the winds of change, the winds of chance, and you got to be ready for it. Bing Copeland, he followed the wind. And what a career benefited so many people thousands of surfboards later what a great story but it's the same in art it's the same in sports and for me it was the same in surgery i knew i wanted to work with my hands but i had no idea i was going to be an orthopedic surgeon i didn't know what they did and i'm sitting in a lecture hall at columbia university 1980 wow that's a long time ago 40 years ago damn i'm sitting in the lecture hall and in walks the chief of orthopedic surgery at Columbia, Dr. Frank Stinchfield, one of the first men to bring hip surgery, a hip replacement from England to America. I didn't know what a legend he was at all. And I'm sitting in my chair to my left is a nice young fellow who wants to be a pediatrician. And to my right sitting next to me is another person who wants to be a psychiatrist. Nothing wrong with that. And I'm sitting there going, I have no idea what I want to be, but I know I want to be a carpenter. I want to use my hands. It's going to be some kind of surgery. That's what I knew. And then all of a sudden, Frank Stinchfield puts up an x-ray, pelvis x-ray, where there's no hip. There's no ball and socket joint. It never fully formed. And he says, this person was born with a congenitally dislocated hip because it wasn't life-threatening. They got to live their whole life limping as a child, as a teenager, but still is able to grow to be an adult, but can no longer walk. And he presents this case in this big lecture hall. Then all of a sudden he says, and Gladys, please come on in here. He brings a woman, beautifully dressed in a salsa dressing outfit, salsa dancing outfit. And she does these pirouettes dancing down in the lecture hall. I'm indoors, but I gotta tell you, it felt like someone opened up the window and just like Bing Copeland saw the flag fly offshore from the Santa Ana winds, the wind came into my heart because I watched this lady dancing and I put two and two together and realized, oh my God, 
This lady is dancing, and she was born with that hip. Frank Stinchfield clicks the slide projector, and the next x-ray is of a prosthesis, and he rebuilt her hip. He said she didn't have a socket, so I made one. When I cut the ball off of what was left of her femur, never really fully formed, I used that bone of hers. And by the way, the first thing he said was, I used a saw to cut the bone. I'm going, saw? Nobody ever told me I could use a saw like my father, the carpenter. He said, then I bolted. I drilled with a drill into the pelvis, and I put screws through the bone, and I made a shelf when there was no shelf in her pelvis so that I can sculpt and create under the shelf a brand-new socket with coverage. I'm sitting there going, he used a saw. He used a drill. He used a screwdriver. He used screws. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, the wind now is blowing through the room. And Cupid came flying in and shot me in the heart and said, Robbie, this is what you're going to do. Just like Bing Copeland said, I'm not going to play baseball. I want to be out there with those waves that this offshore wind is doing. Just like Robert Goulet and Maurice Chevalier, just on the moment, five minutes, just like Alan J. Lerner and Fritz Lowe say, they were ready to leave, but they stayed. And in that five minutes, Robert Goulet became a star. Otherwise, who knows what? It would have been another career that never happened. The wind of change, the wind of change, but you do have to be open for it. Listening to Robbie Nash, the greatest windsurfer of all time, talk about the three-dimensional nature of wind and water, the gentleness of landing in the water. He also broke his pelvis doing it, by the way. It's not that gentle. But the adaptability that you must be to deal with the winds of change. I think that's the message. You have to be open for the wind that's going to change on a dime and be adaptable. Listening to Bing Copeland, he's not a person who's going to have all kinds of highs and lows in his voice. But I'm here to tell you what that man did to the entire world of surfing is more than the aw shucks. I kind of just did this and I did that and I did this. But he made major advances in every aspect of that sport. Just a blessing to be able to talk to a man in his mid-80s like that. Next week, my guest is going to be Natasha Trentacosta, who's a doctor, who's an orthopedic surgeon at Curl and Job, whose specialty is kids. Growth plates are still in. And being a woman, she really enjoys taking care of women athletes. What a whole unique perspective that's going to be. It's really going to be fun for me to teach you all about what happens when you do injure yourself and you're still growing. The growth plate, we have to be very, very cognizant of that because we can do a beautiful surgery, but if we mess up the ability for the child's leg to still grow, then one leg becomes longer than the other, which is a disaster. And yet if you tore your ACL and you're 12 years old, what do we do? This is the kind of conversation I want to have next week. Until then, stay safe at home. Make the salad with red wine vinegar that I told you about. The bowl of salad is not made of wood anymore where you rub the garlic into it. So I just chop up the garlic finely. But when you drink that red wine vinegar with the garlic in it, think of me. Until next week, I'll see you on the radio. Mm -hmm.
nel cielo infinito volare Weekend Warrior is brought to you by Cedar sinai with multiple primary care locations in Beverly Hills, the San Fernando Valley, and across the west side, Cedar sinai is bringing expert care closer to you and your family. From checkups to consultations that guide you to specialized care, trust the experts at Cedar sinai to help manage your health right in your neighborhood. To learn more, call 1-800-CEDARS-1. That's 1-800-CEDARS-1. Or visit us online at cedarsinai.org slash primary care.